The story you were about to hear is true. Attention, all true. He's alive. You're in a sun-drenched art room. You're a kid, maybe in third grade. The room smells like finger paints and modeling clay. Behind you, some kids are whispering. They whisper words you've never heard spoken aloud. Elves, dwarf, dragon. What do you do? I don't know. I I guess I go listen to them. Okay, roll 20. Wait, what am I rolling 20 for? Just roll 20. Well, I want to know what I'm rolling it for. Well, it doesn't matter what you're rolling it for. Just roll the 20 and I'll tell you what you're rolling it for. Well, I need to know, is it is it a saving throw or am I rolling to attack? Well, you didn't roll initiative. What does it matter? Well, I need to know if I should use my purple die or my orange die, you know. Well, which well what which is which? Well, the the purple is for attacking and the orange is for saving throws. Roll the orange. What'd you get? I rolled a 1. Oh. You are deeply entranced with what they're saying. I knew it! I knew it was a saving throw. That's exactly what my life was like in third grade when I first heard about Dungeons and Dragons. There were some kids behind me talking about it in art class, and I was instantly entranced. Completely failed that saving throw. I tried to find out more from them on how to play the game, all that sort of stuff, and they would tell me about it, but it was cryptic. I didn't understand the rules, and I couldn't get an invite from them to play. So from what they were talking about, I sort of understood the basics. So I went home after that and started coming up with my own role-playing system based on the dice that I had at hand, which was all D6s. I basically created a system where you would roll the dice versus a difficulty level, and then you would take your skill set, which I kind of thought was based on the what you would get by rolling a number between 3 and 18. I even managed to talk one of my better friends into playing it with me, and it worked okay. Then, that Christmas, I ran down to the Christmas tree, and there they were. Two box sets, the basic and expert systems, along with a really cool module, Castle Amber. I ripped into the boxes and read them with gusto. I finally understood what everybody was talking about. When the holiday break ended, I approached the art room role players and could finally have a decent conversation with them. A month later, they invited me to join their game. It was an advanced Dungeons & Dragons game. And after that, the rest is history. I was hooked. I would play Dungeons & Dragons for the rest of my life, and role-playing games have been near and dear to my heart, in paper and in video game form ever since. On today's show, we're going to talk about probably one of the greatest games to come out of the 20th century, Dungeons & Dragons. We're going to talk about its creation, its many iterations. We'll touch on the people who created it. We'll talk about its jump to other mediums, video games, television. I'd love to tell more stories about some of the great games that I got to play in, but we got a lot of material to cover, so that'll have to wait for another time. So without further ado, let's start the show.
For those of you not in the know, Dungeons & Dragons is a structured yet open-ended role-playing game. Unlike LARPing, which is live-action role-playing, Dungeons & Dragons is normally played indoors with participants seated around a table, sometimes around a couch, and one player takes the role of Dungeon Master. They're usually behind screens or some area where they can have a little bit of privacy and access a lot of rules. The people who are playing take on the role of characters or PCs, player characters. During the course of play, each player directs the actions of his or her characters and will interact with non-player characters who are controlled by the Dungeon Master and the other players around the table. You'll often go on adventures, which are often pre-printed modules, or you'll be part of a longer storyline that is created by the DM, which is often referred to as a campaign. The Dungeon Master role is that of an interactive storyteller, guiding the player to different locations and allowing them to interact with a fantasy world that either they adopted or made themselves. But that doesn't mean that the player character is just along for the ride. The actions of the player will influence that world. So it's important that they stay in character, because everything they do influences everything else. To play Dungeons and Dragons, you don't need much. You need some rule books, some paper to make a character sheet, and some polyhedral dice. Throughout the history of the game, it has been encouraged that people use miniatures, but due to the flexibility of the gaming system, they are not necessary, although they are a lot of fun to paint. So you make your character, choosing attributes, what they are, what they do, what their alignment is, if they're evil or if they're good. And why do people do that? Well, you need to choose these things so that when you're role-playing, you have a guideline. You just can't be willy-nilly. One day I'm good Sir Knight helping everybody, but because the next day I'm in a bad mood in real life, I'm burning down libraries. You have to stay consistent when you role-play. That's part of the reward. Now, sure, there's dice rolling and stat tracking and other board gamey type elements, but basically, that's how you play. The history of Dungeons & Dragons is as storied as the themes that run through the game itself. The current version of Dungeons & Dragons bills itself as 4.0, and the game has gone through many more than four iterations since it was first introduced as Dungeons & Dragons in 1974. To be technical, the Dungeons & Dragons game did actually appear three years earlier as a 15-page fantasy supplement in the back of Chainmail, a medieval miniatures war game written by Gary Gygax and Jeff Perrin. Chainmail came around early in the tabletop miniature wargaming craze that swept through the United States in the 60s and 70s. It wasn't the first, but it was poised at the right moment, and the right people were involved, namely Gary Gygax. The concepts that he and Perrin would introduce to Chainmail would endure through all editions of Dungeons and & Dragons. And for those who have played Dungeons & Dragons, monsters like Elementals and Chromatic Dragons and spells like Fireball, Lightning Bolt, and Polymorph, and dividing everything by alignment, those were all things that were introduced in the fantasy supplement for Chainmail. But despite those innovations, it was still pretty much just a war games focused system, not a role playing game. It was meant as a set of brief rules specifically to simulate battles between large numbers of creatures, not just humans on a battlefield. But this rule system suggested the idea of using one miniature to represent a single character rather than a whole unit. And if you think of it, that is the genesis for an individual player-based fantasy role-playing game. So three years after Chainmail's fantasy supplement was published, Tactical Studies Rules released a massive expansion of the ideas that were outlined in the fantasy supplement. It seems that Gygax needed to have another spark of genius 
thrown into the mix. And that spark of genius was Dave Arneson, who was a fellow war gamer who had taken the fantasy supplement and expanded them with rules for dungeon exploration and kept the idea that a single player was represented by a single figure. Arneson created what would basically be the first campaign setting set below Blackmore Castle. As more and more people started to enjoy the system, that world started to grow. According to Arneson, so even in the dungeon, it quickly became apparent that there was need for greater variety of monsters, more definition, even within the type of monsters, and a certainly a deeper dungeon. Arneson's hit was so popular that it started to appear in newsletters amongst wargamers, and that's when Gary Gygax found out about it. Arneson visited Gygax in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin in 1972, and the two played the game using modified and expanded rules. Could you imagine being a fly on the wall at that session? Amazing. Gygax would later say that Arneson's additions made Chainmail a far more complex and very exciting game. Immediately afterwards, Gygax began working on a brand new manuscript for this game system. About three weeks later, he had 100 typewritten pages, and he and Arneson began playtesting. Dungeons & Dragons had been born. On November 1st, 1973, Gary Gygax penned the foreword for the new Dungeons & Dragons, and it was very apparent from his description that this was just not another war game. He said, while it is possible to play a single game unrelated to any other game events past or future, it is the campaign for which these rules are designed. It is relatively simple to set up a fantasy campaign, and better still, it would cost almost nothing. In fact, you will not even need miniature figures, although their occasional employment is recommended for real spectacle when battles are fought. A quick glance at the equipment section of this booklet will reveal just how little is required. The most extensive requirement is time. The campaign referee will have to have sufficient time to meet the demands of his players. He will have to devote a number of hours to laying out the maps of his dungeons and the upper terrains before the affair begins. Now you notice he said something very cool there. He said the upper terrains. Now you could say, well, upper terrains could mean the areas right before you get into the dungeon. Something that's mappable that will have fights in it. But to people with imagination, it also meant a bigger world. One where you interacted with innkeepers. One where you talked with princes and kings and solved puzzles. The role-playing was taking over from the wargaming. These original rules were written with the assumption that the audience would be familiar with wargaming. It is peppered with terms like referee and, of course, campaign. The D&D set came with three rule books, and they covered the spells, equipment, monsters, and combat system necessary to run a campaign centered around the exploration of a giant dungeon. Still, there was a lot that the game had in common with wargaming. Characters did not gain experience points for peacefully interacting with the world. Characters only gained experience points for killing things. But as I mentioned, there was a world outside of the dungeon. And once that germ was planted into the mind of referees, there was no holding them back. Another great difference between wargaming and Dungeons & Dragons would be that it was much more intimate. In earlier settings and earlier rule systems for wargames, they thought that you would only need a referee for every 20 players. But as the game developed, D&D became much more personal where it could be one-on-one, or it could be two-on-one. And what was great is that the system left that all up to interpretation. Some people ran it like it was a board game. Others almost made it like theater. And that raised the appeal of the game to different segments who might not have touched it. 
it's humorous to think that the nebulous state of the game would contribute to the game's early success, but even Gary Gygax acknowledged that at the time and promised a correction of it. He said, D&D was released long before I was satisfied that it was actually ready. You can, however, rest assured that work on a complete revision of the game is in progress, and I promise a far better product. Like, that could have been possible. Another thing that contributed to the success of the early Dungeons & Dragons was that a great amount of unofficial supplements were published in blatant violation of TSR's copyright. For the most part, TSR ignored these unofficial supplements, although a few of the innovations, especially of the Arduin series, would actually show up into mainstream D&D play. Things like critical hits and two-dimensional alignment. I remember as a kid dreaming of being able to make my own supplements because I would see so many things at the local role-playing store. Yes, we had role-playing stores that were obviously printed by local people. It fueled the dream and fueled me to buy more TSR products. So Gary Gygax promised a far better product, and that product came along in 1977 in the form of the Dungeons & Dragons basic set, which was a larger, more visually attractive box set. And this set tried to focus on teaching people the very basics of role-playing by concentrating not on the grander picture, but the advancement of the player through the first three levels. This would be followed up with other sets that would bring you through higher levels and hopefully lead to a more expansive system that was being worked on called Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. If the D&D basic set accomplished one thing, it really introduced the concept of role-playing. What it doesn't do is show the bigger picture. It's not a end-all be-all. It sets you off in a dungeon and that's it. It doesn't give rules for wilderness. It doesn't give you rules for running your own stronghold. But it was a gateway for everyone to get into the art of role-playing. Between 1983 and 1985, the system would be revised and expanded by Frank Metzer as a series of five box sets. This would include the basic rules, the red cover, the expert rules, the blue cover, the companion rules, the green cover, the master rules, which would be the black cover, and the immortal rules, which were the gold cover. And those systems would take you from level one all the way up to a character who transcended levels. Most people, once they had gotten through the basic system, would move on to the hard-covered books of the advanced Dungeons & Dragons systems. This is Louis Zaki, the president of Game Science. I manufacture high-precision polyhedra dice, and when you listen to the Retroist, it's like rolling a 100 on the 100-sided dice. An updated version of Dungeons & Dragons was released as Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. The entirety of the original Advanced Dungeons & Dragons books were three volumes that were compiled by Gary Gygax between 1977 and 1979. They were the Monster Manual, the Player's Handbook, and the Dungeon Master's Guide. Over the next ten years, other books would get released, such as Deities and Demigods, Fiend Folio, Monster Manual 2, and Unearthed Arcana. There would be other small supplements published and many, many adventures, not to mention supplemental material from role-playing magazines like Dragon and Dungeon, which I'll talk about a little later. During this first edition of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, a new campaign setting was developed by game designer Ed Greenwood. He came up with the setting around 1967 as a place to put his childhood stories 
and he would bring the setting to D&D games initially as a series of magazine articles several years later. This campaign setting would be called the Forgotten Realms, or to players and dungeon masters simply as the Realms. The first Forgotten Realms products were released in 1987, but it would go on to sweep through the Dungeons & Dragons world, basically taking over and jumping off the gaming table into video games and the books of R.A. Salvatore, the Pool of Radiance video games, and even the big hit Neverwinter Nights all take place in the Forgotten Realms. Some interesting fact about the Forgotten Realms. According to Greenwood, the Forgotten Realms is an imaginary fantasy world that actually exists somewhere beyond our world. The premise is that long ago the Earth and the world of the Forgotten Realms were more closely connected, but as time passed, the inhabitants of our planet had forgotten about the existence of that other world, hence the term Forgotten Realms. And on the original Forgotten Realms logo, which was used up until the turn of the millennium, the little runic letters read, Herein lies the lost land, an allusion to the connection between our two worlds. Dungeons & Dragons has had many, many additions over the years, from the 1.0 system all the way up to the current 4.0 system. And here's the breakdown by year of these editions. From the advanced Dungeons & Dragons side, in 1977, you had the Monster Manual published in December, in June of 78, the Player's Handbook, and in 79, the DM's Guide. Then in 1983, the core rule books were all reprinted with these new orange spine covers. And in 1985, the last core rule book would come out, Unearthed Arcana. Then in 1989, the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition was published. This was more well thought out and consisted of the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monstrous Compendium all at once. The 2nd Edition is interesting in that it was made with a policy change in mind. An effort was being made to remove aspects of the game which had attracted negative publicity. Most notably, this meant the removal of all demons and devils from the game. And they wanted to remove the moral ambiguity of the 1st Edition AD&D system. To that end, the TSR staff would eliminate character classes like the Assassin and the Race, the Half-Orc. It also stressed heroic role-playing and player teamwork. I much preferred the first edition game. Not sure what that says about me. After this, the core of D&D would just kind of sit on the shelf, and eventually TSR would be bought by Wizards of the Coast. Although AD&D would come to dominate things, that doesn't mean that the original D&D was not still being published and revised. This would culminate in the 5th edition and the Wrath of the Immortals in 1992. Then in 1997, Wizards of the Coast would begin working on Dungeons & Dragons and changing the system. And in 2000, a major revision to the AD&D rules was released. Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition. That's right, the basic rules had been discontinued and the advanced word was dropped altogether. It was just Dungeons & Dragons now. Yet it was still referred to as 3rd edition. The game was simplified and designed around a new system called the D20 system. The D20 system used a more unified mechanic than earlier editions, resolving nearly all actions with the same type of die roll. The combat system was expanded, and greater tactics were added, and, very importantly, the D20 system would be presented under the Open Gaming License, which made it an open-source system for which authors could write new games and game supplements without the need to develop a unique rule system, and, more importantly, without the need for direct approval from Wizards of the Coast. This harkened back to the earlier effort, where it made it easier for people to create D&D-compatible products, and many companies took this up and produced 
content for the D20 system, including one of the greats, White Wolf. In 2003, there was a small adjustment, and version 3.5 came out. Most people I know skipped over that, realizing that if they were running out with 3.5, 4.0 needed to be just around the corner. It wasn't. It took five years before Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition would come out with a new player's handbook, Monster Manual, and Dungeon Master's Guide. That would be followed in 2009 by the Player's Handbook 2, Monster Manual 2, and DM's Guide 2. There was a lot of web anger at the release of 4.0 after the financial investment of 3.5, but the 4th edition's initial print run sold out so quickly due to pre-orders that Wizards of the Coast announced a second print run, so instantly 4.0 was a hit. Some of the changes that were put into three, from 3.5 to 4.0 were new classes added, multi-class system had been revised, changes in spells and other per-encounter resourcing, revisions of saving throws and defense values, and many of the non-combat spells had been replaced by rituals. One of the more interesting things is that there were new rules made for leveling monsters down to allow for easier encounter design and flexibility. If anything, over the years, the Dungeons & Dragons rule system has tried to make the game more accessible, and that has gotten a mixed reaction from players over the years. Me, I never minded the complicated rule system, but of course I grew up playing it. Anyone who picks up that book for the first time can often find those first edition rules very daunting. No matter what edition you have, Dungeons & Dragons is always fun. D&D has become popular with children anywhere from grammar school on up. Not so with a lot of adults who think it's been connected to a number of suicides and murders. As I mentioned, Dungeons & Dragons was rife with controversy and received a great amount of negative publicity from different groups over the years. Some alleged that it promoted practices such as devil worship and witchcraft, suicide and murder. It certainly didn't help that the early first edition manuals had topless drawings of naked female humanoids. As I mentioned, this would lead TSR to remove many of those potentially controversial references and artwork when releasing the second edition of AD&D. Many of these references, including the use of the name Devil and Demon, would be reintroduced in the third edition of the game once the moral panic around the game had subsided. Dungeons & Dragons has been the subject of rumor-mongering amongst people who don't play it, and chief amongst them is that it will damage your ability to separate fantasy and reality. This was most notably fictionalized in the novel Mazes and Monsters, which would later be made into a television movie that had Chris Makepeace and Tom Hanks in it. Another big controversy surrounding the game had nothing to do with the air quote game's moral message, but instead had to do with royalties between the two creators of the game, Gygax and Arneson. There would be a series of lawsuits, and Gygax would later become embroiled in a political struggle for control of TSR, which would culminate in a court battle and would lead to Gygax's decision to sell his controlling interest in the company in 1985. The rule books were not the only place that you could get Dungeons & Dragons information. Besides locally produced and third-party marketed material, you could pick up two official magazines from TSR. The first would be Dragon, which originally launched as a printed magazine in 1976 and was meant to replace the company's earlier publication, The Strategic Review. The final printed issue was in September of 2007, and it was issue 359. Dragon was then switched to an online magazine and continued on the numbering of the print edition. The other official magazine was Dungeon, which was first published by TSR in 1986 as a bi-monthly magazine. It went monthly in 2003, 
but then would cease paper publication in September of 2007. While Dragon would concentrate on information about role-playing, the lifestyle, it would include articles about gaming, Dungeon was dedicated to providing self-contained, pre-written, play-tested game scenarios. Do you know what was really great about both of these publications? You, as a reader, could submit content to the magazine, unsolicited. Sadly, nothing I ever submitted made it into their pages. Maybe I should go look at the website and submit some new stuff. Dungeons & Dragons made the leap to the big screen in a 2000 live-action film directed by Courtney Solomon and ostensibly based on the role-playing game. For those role-players who grew up in the 80s, there wasn't a Saturday that would pass that we would not watch the cartoon Dungeons & Dragons. The cartoon was a co-production of Marvel Productions and TSR and would run for three seasons on CBS. The general premise of the show is that a group of children are pulled into the realm of Dungeons & Dragons by taking a magical dark ride trip in an amusement park roller coaster. Upon arriving in the Dungeons & Dragons realm, the children are introduced to Dungeon Master, named after the referee in the D&D system, and are each given clothing and paraphernalia to suit their abilities. The level of violence in the show was controversial at the time, and the script of one episode, The Dragon's Graveyard, was almost shelved because the characters contemplated killing their nemesis, Avenger. In 1985, the National Coalition of Television claimed that it was the most violent show on network television, but that did not detract from its popularity. While it was on the air, the series spawned more than 100 different licenses, many of them which you can see on the shelf above my computer, and the show would lead its time slot for two years. If you were alone, you could do two things with Dungeons & Dragons. You could play by yourself, which I did. I would roll up characters, have solo adventures, making a randomly generated dungeon and encounters. But luckily, almost from the beginning of computers, there was a computer game based on Dungeons & Dragons, starting in 1974 with the game D&D, and most recently with Neverwinter Nights 2, Storm of Zaheer, One could argue that all of the fantasy role-playing games that have come in between, and there have been over 50 just D&D titles, in addition to the hundreds, maybe even thousands of other fantasy games that have come over the years. Even today, the most popular PC game available is the MMO World of Warcraft, and without Dungeons & Dragons, games like World of Warcraft would never exist. The computer landscape would have a big hole in it. Okay, we've all heard the jokes. D&D players are often portrayed as the epitome of geekdom. If you're into the new geek movement, I guess you would smile and take that as a compliment. But at the same time, if you were a D&D player, you often had to deal with people mocking you. But remember, you're in great company. Famous D&D players over the years have included professional basketball player Tim Duncan, comedians Stephen Colbert, Mike Myers, Patton Oswalt, and Robin Williams. And actors like Vin Diesel and Matthew Lillard. D&D is a way to escape from the real world and to make concrete the world that's in our imagination. If you're a dungeon master, it allows you to tell a story to your friends and allows them to live in that world. As a player, it allows you to take on a different persona and to be a person that perhaps you could never be in real life. It's a healthy exercise, it's a fun diversion, and it's one of the greatest games ever made.
Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. And I'm on Facebook. You can follow me at facebook.com slash retroist. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. tried to keep the swords away from the table. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.